0: Welcome
1: to SM Underground. Some topics seem more light of day than others. For the rest, there's SM Underground. The SM Underground podcast is a series of conversations between people at the cutting edge of their industries, because who better to paint a picture of the future than those holding the brush? This episode's topic is waste tech, and we discuss waste literacy, financial incentives and levies, regeneration over sustainability, and exciting innovations in waste tech, such as PHA, and turning food waste into food for human consumption. I'm your host, Bronte McHenry, and my guests today are Phoebe Gardner, Jaden Kilnack, and Priska Ondonga-Dane. Phoebe is the co-founder of Bardi, which is on a mission to reshape the global food system. To do this, Bardi is using insects to transform food waste into protein and fertilizer, and offsetting CO2E in the process. Jaden is the founder of For the Better Good, which sells compostable water bottles across New Zealand. His goal is to not only replace oil-based plastics and end our reliance on fossil fuels, but to create product systems and business models that go beyond sustainability and into regeneration. And finally, Priska is the founder of Besop and is on a mission to make it easy for everyone to reduce their usage of single-use plastic. To achieve this, BearSop crystallizes the active ingredients in soap into a powdered formulation using only plant-based ingredients. Let's dive in, shall we? Phoebe, why don't you kick us off by telling us the current trajectory of the majority of our food waste and what the future would look like if
2: nothing changed? The first thing to mention would be that with food waste, the current status quo is that globally about a third of the food waste that's produced is either wasted or lost. And a large proportion of that food waste ends up in landfills across the globe. The issue with it going to landfill is sometimes misunderstood and so I can maybe clarify that a little bit. It's, it's what happens in the landfill where the food waste is further compacted and breaks down in a way that produces methane that can be so harmful to the environment. The methane that's produced is about 30 times or more potent than say a CO2 emission in terms of how it impacts our climate. There's a lot of exciting new technologies, body being one of them, um, trying to shift it out of landfill. Uh, But there's so much further to go um, with the status quo being a third of food produced being wasted or lost.
1: Mm, mm. And Priska, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the current trajectory of single-use plastic.
3: Right, yeah. So really, it was quite incredible to to find out that we consume, or I would say purchase, 1.5 billion of single-use plastic a day globally, and that's really just for personal care products only. And to think that that's a thing we do every day is like food. It's part of our life. We can't live without it. Now, if we imagine every single day, how much of waste that's creating, right? And not even just the plastic part, but even the carbon emission that comes from the manufacturing, the whole entire system from the manufacturing to the transportation, to storage, and then disposing of, of these products. Yeah, wow. And so Prisca sort of touched on it here, Jaden. but I'd, I'd love to throw this
1: next question to you. So what are the incentives and structures that are driving the status quo?
0: Well, I think like we use this word waste, but it's, it's about the systems that it operates in and waste in the current systems is waste because it ends up in a hole but really if we just look at it differently and look at how we can change the systems it becomes a resource very quickly um and then just changing that word from waste to resource can just help us help us shift where the current incentives of throwing something away where kind of away is this place that doesn't really exist it's just out of sight out of mind is is the norm or just putting something in the bin um as we've always been told or even putting something in the recycling bin but really not having transparency on on where that's going and i think it's a bit of a passing a baton because if you look at plastic um or or even food or anything this there's a person that grows it or pulls it out of the ground as oil or or food and then it kind of gets passed on to something that makes someone that makes it into something else then passed on to a retailer and then bought by the consumer who's kind of that meant to be that final frontier but there's no connection between each stage and its life cycle, or there's no unison, um, and it's, it's not really looked at holistically. So suddenly you've got these messages that are getting broken up along the way, and people are just really confused at the end. And even if they do something they think is right, like put a plastic thing that has a pla- recycling symbol in a recycling bin, it might not still get recycled. Like New Zealand's exported 96,000 tonnes of plastic waste overseas in the last three years alone, and that's our what's being collected for recycling. So I think it's, um, there, there is no really incentive, but it's also a really a great disconnect between industries and people um, and systems around different countries. Even here in New Zealand, and it might be similar in Australia, what you can recycle in Auckland, you can't put in the same bin three hours down the road in another town. Um, so it's, it's really a systematic problem, all the way that I look at it.
3: Cheyden, can I just pick up on that and add you are absolutely right because I feel it's really about the circular economy, right? Really but truly and truly how, as you said, how do you make sure that you can use this today but after you've used it for this purpose, you can reuse it for another purpose and it literally
0: doesn't turn into waste? Yeah, and I think that's where it falls back onto design. Like if something's designed at the start of life to be reused or used in a certain way and designed for end of life, like if the same person, people making the material or the same people collecting it, and disposing of it, they're going to know how to make it because they're going to have to get it back and do something with it. Where right now there's four steps in between and they don't even really talk to each other.
2: I also think what's interesting is at least in um, where we're operating in food waste, we're starting to see some quite strong financial incentives come in place. Um, that are shifting the status quo and encouraging um, more individuals as well as businesses to understand their own supply chains. And I think it's probably not on a on a waste front, but we've also seen the legislative change as well um, from a human rights perspective. I mean, I know, Barty, we report on our supply chains from that perspective. And then um, on the food waste front, there are it's quite localised, but we're starting to see state-based levies on the types of waste streams that are going to landfill with organic waste having a quite increased levy. And we're seeing most states adopt increased levies, but at varying levels. And that really incentivizes companies to look at the spend on waste disposal um, and it starts to and it helps them make the, the shift. I could be spending less on waste and be doing a good thing for the environment by finding other places um, that waste can go so that it can become, as Jaden suggested, be used as a resource um, rather than going into landfills. And so that's really interesting. And then we're also seeing as well as the state level and even more localised level of incentives start to happen, um, which is at the council level. So it's it's quite interesting with councils providing more infrastructure for residents to um, better separate their waste streams so that they can be recycled more effectively. The... The interest there is that there's a lot of learning that needs to happen to really ch- shift the status quo and with. The incentives being different in each location or a different incentive for business versus a different incentive for home, um, a different incentive for one, someone on one side of the street versus the other side of the street. Um, it means there's a lot of like, learning and literacy around waste that, that needs to happen for the transition to be um, really successful. But it is interesting that there is a financial element to shifting the status quo that we're starting to see in Australia really come to life. Hundred percent, Phoebe, because
3: there's been this conversation about could the government introduce a kind of tax system that is actually built in the policy at, at at high level, and it becomes
0: pretty much like your normal GST tax, right? I think there's an example of that coming through in the UK now, where they're looking to tax plastics that don't um, aren't recy- having recycled content in them, or are just purely um, oil based, and. You know, I've I've been in, in the industry of trying to get out of fossil fuel plastics for nine years now, and people are definitely warming up and um, big companies are taking more interest. However, you always end up with the CFO or the financial guy and hit a pretty big brick wall a lot of the time. And the odd one will push through and in the innovative ones. But to see those kind of as sad as it is coming back to that, really that bottom line incentives coming through, um, especially at a government level, now that the grassroots has gained momentum, I think is really going to cause the the big shifts that we need. Hmm.
2: I also think that what makes those types of financial incentives successful and more more viable to be implemented is, is exactly what all of us are doing, as well as other people engaging in creating innovative waste technologies in the circular economy. Those solutions have to exist for the levies to work, whether that's designing the waste out of the system in the first place or for that waste that is still being produced or is unavoidable, making sure that it's being used as a resource. That technology has to exist. Um, A lot of parts need to come together to shift the status quo, but at least from our end, and I think what I'm hearing across the board is that we're starting to see those wheels turning a little faster.
0: I think another spin on it as well is maybe companies taking a different look at what that bottom line is because I think we all know when we put something in a bin or if you produce a a harmful material or you don't compost your food waste it might not be a cost to you or your business but someone's paying and generally it's the environment and working out some solid framework that we can actually structure that into accounting books um, I think could revolutionize the way actually people view that and it might not just be purely monetarily but it will be taking a cost that is happening elsewhere and they making it uh, more visible. Mm,
1: mm. So we've touched on financial incentives and changing attitudes to waste in general. I'd now like to ask the three of you about scalability. What's it going to take to get to where we need to be yeah
2: i mean super keen to jump into this so we're operating at up to 10 tons of food waste diverted from landfill every eight hours that we run our facility at body and so that's what that looks like is like four to five rubbish trucks that you might see on a street worth of food waste and what that represents is 0.003 percent of melbourne's food waste that's currently being wasted and that's just Melbourne and the areas of food production supporting Melbourne. And, and it's a very small fraction of what's being produced. And the reality is that a lot of the streams that we receive are coming from food manufacturing where there's a 30% wastage designed into that manufacturing process. So whether it's the cutoff from producing tons of dumplings per day and we just receive that direct cutoff or the waste from markets that's not sold over the weekend, there's, there's an enormous amount of waste and so having scalable technologies, I think, comes down to can you take a waste stream and significantly uplift it in its, in its value so that you're creating a product that's truly useful and, and has a great user experience on the other side? That's what really drives scalability and there's so it's such a large problem that I could see Bardi building multiple facilities in Melbourne and much larger facilities servicing whole cities where we're processing in the hundreds of tons per day as opposed to the 10 tons per eight hours where, where we are now at our first facility. The need is there. Um, but in order for it to be successful, what what needs to be really work through is that when that waste is being upcycled that what the result is is another product that has true value for customers and that's really what's going to drive the growth I think is the is the pull for that high quality product in our case it's uh, insect protein and a fertilizer that are replacements for less sustainable options and yeah we're really excited to take a really strong product focus to scaling uh, circular waste technology.
0: For us, the, the scalability has been an interesting one because we're not just trying to scale a product. The last thing we're trying to do is just sell lots and lots of a, of another product that's a better material because the system needs to, um, to be there for it to actually be a true solution and for it to be a regenerative outcome as opposed to just something that's better at one stage of a life cycle than something else. And that uh, really did, wasn't in line with my thinking. So We've had so many opportunities to go into other markets. We are nationwide in New Zealand, but we have composting sites all throughout New Zealand and collection all throughout New Zealand. And we've had so many opportunities to go into other countries, but to go and set that up again in another country where the collection and the composting is is quite a big task. Um, and so then it came back to going, okay, we've we've made it better at every step from it's a better material, it's it's reusable um we collect it back we compost it and then we're using that compost to rebuild soil and or grow food and now it's gone back to the start and we're now looking at better materials again and we're um, we're now working with a, a completely natural plastic called pha um it's made from food waste it could be made from anything organic um so forestry waste dairy waste food waste and it's it, you basically put all the waste into big tanks and grow bacteria non-gmo wild bacteria. And then when that bacteria gets cold or gets hungry, it starts to store pockets of energy um, for a rainy day. And that pocket of energy, which exists in nature already, in us and in animals and in plants, is called PHA. And it happens to be a really good plastic replacement. So then once the bacteria has produced enough PHA, you harvest it out of the bacteria, and then you can use that to make um, different plastic replacements. And it acts, it's still non-toxic, so it's still reusable, but because it's made it already exists in nature the ecosystem knows how to digest it so it's a truly natural material um, and because of those because it's just grown in bacteria it can degrade in the ocean um, it can be home compostable it's soil degradable it can be incinerated into clean energy if you want it can be also be recycled an infinite amount of times so the same bugs that made it can also break it down again so having the ability to put something back in the system that gets eaten up and turns into a virgin material in an infinite recycling loop, unlike oil-based plastics that have a finite that can only be recycled a certain amount of times, um, that opens us up to then start to looking at, okay, what happens outside of New Zealand? Because we're not just relying on one system or one um, end of life. We can actually open up to say, okay, in your country, um, you have this, so this is how this can work. Or you have these three, so this is how this can work. And one thing they've found because it's essentially pure carbon, it's a solid state of carbon. So if it ends up in the ocean or in um, in agriculture where we're heavily using fertilizers and we've got far too much nitrogen, so our carbon nitrogen balance is far out, that the PHA will actually act, act as a dentrification process, which helps the nitrogen off gas, which will then help, right? turn the nitrogen cells into gas, so then there's no runoff into the ocean. It prevents acidification in oceans, and they're already using it in aquariums to balance that out. So suddenly you've got something that, you know, if you had a bottle in a country that had no end of life, you could simply chip them up, spread them through agriculture fields, and then you're uh, mitigating greenhouse gas emissions. So once we can get to a better material, we'll look into other markets, but for now it's not just taking a, a product out there and selling as many as we can. So it's a, it's a timing thing and making sure when it's done, it's done right.
3: I t- I'll, I'll touch on to Phoebe's point on user experience and probably Jen as well. I feel like with these solutions for them to work, I mean, at least for, for hours, the user experience has to be at the core of the design. So if the user is not having the experience that they love, they are likely to go back to their previous experience. Um, so we've really had to work and find out what is the experience and how can we get them to come back and say, Oh, I love this product. It's great for the environment, but also because I love how it feels because that is really what's going to make them keep on using it. But we also realize, as you said, scale is everything. That's why we have restructured our um, go-to-market strategy. So it's very much, very much volume driven. And that's why we are partnering with large-scale box retailers, like your Woolworths, or in the US, like your Whole Foods or, or Kohl's, because that's where the customer is shopping at the moment. Like, how do we meet them where they already are? Because if if we have less than millions of people using this product, we are not really making a difference at the scale we want or we should.
2: And I mean, I'd love to jump in there. Like, I, I really hope that circular economy startups are going to be the, like, the strongest startups of this decade. The climate change timeline and how much, uh, how much we need to cut the global emissions really means that there's, I think, this inherent alignment right from the start with circular economy startups to scale quite quickly in order to scale impact. Um, and so those startups that are impact driven, like the larger they can become more quickly, the more support they can receive from the community, have the resources they need to grow and deliver, the greater the impact can be. And and that can exist in alignment with the targets that we need to achieve um, for global reduction in carbon emissions. So I think it's just like circular economy startups, it's just incredible um, time of alignment in terms of like, why now? And I hope that there are lots of, of huge success stories, um, in the space over the coming decade, like, you know, for the climate, preferably in the first front of the decade.
3: That's exactly right. And I feel like what's needed more of is the measuring of data, because how do we collect the data to show the impact? Um, so people can say, Oh, actually it's working. And I feel like that's where there's probably a gap still. Don't know if you guys agree.
0: Absolutely. Because I think we need to know what what the good is, right? If it's creating good, what does that look like? And if we have these targets and we have to lower emissions by a certain rate, how do we know when we get there if we don't have the data? But I think it's just such an interesting time because if you look back at the industrial revolution now, we're at this point is the bigger a business is or the bigger a product is, the more harm it's doing. And then you've got solutions like yours coming out. It's kind of going, the biggest the solution is, the more good it's doing. And it's really flipped the story into this really exciting place with with what a, what a circular economy can achieve in that way. And scale has actually become a good thing where – Historically, scale was a little bit scary in some instances. Trying
2: to quantify positive impact has been really interesting. Like we've looked at um, ACUs, for, for instance, for the Australian scheme for carbon credits, and it's something that we're really excited to, to work on and achieve that type of accreditation. But I also find that current data capture sometimes struggles with the really highly innovative, right at the edge of what's technically possible type of solutions and I think that it's those solutions that have the greatest potential to have really enormous impact. Um, so I think it's gonna be interesting over time to see how some of the data capture and accreditation processes for things like car- achieving carbon credits shift to be able to include some of the really positive, um, high impact solutions um, that are quite unique and innovative. I think at the moment, at least at Bardi, that's very internally driven. We have really strong data collection and software processes. We then get our carbon offset claims externally audited. But there's not a central figure that's creating a stamp because we do sit outside, um, say, a, a tree planting project to generate carbon offsets. We're doing something that's quite different and and quite unique. So I think that'll be really interesting. I think it's something the whole space needs to overcome, a way to include through data capture the positive impact of more unique technologies that stand to have a great positive impact.
0: There's so many complexities to it. Like if you look at soil carbon, which is one of our greatest technologies, I think even though it's completely natural that we have about against reversing climate change and compost is obviously a great enabler of that. And there was a Berkeley experiment done where they sprinkled compost on on some farmland and that that quarter acre absorbed three to eight tons of carbon year on year for every year they've been testing it. So then if they extrapolated that out and did a quarter of California's rangelands, just that one-time application of compost would sequester 75% of California's carbon emissions. However, every piece of soil all around the world is completely different. So to say that that's going to be the same on a patch of land in Australia or New Zealand or depending on what that patch of land was like before you put the compost on because obviously it gets better over time is really difficult. But I think there is some really exciting technologies that are coming out. To match the natural technologies um, where that data collection is going to become key and it can only get better.
2: Yeah, and we need lots of amazing um, soil sequestration agronomists helping us out.
0: It's a really exciting space, I think. I think the, it's it's one of the technologies that's overlooked. There's all these things coming out about burying carbon in the ground and big holes where really if you just lay some compost out and plant some food, the amount of carbon that can be sequestered in your backyard is is quite amazing.
1: I I think it's really interesting the points you've made about changing mass public attitudes, which is obviously something that really needs to happen. Can we touch a little bit on converting
3: the reluctant? Um, Personally, for me, I feel that humans, you know, we are quite malleable in the way we think and we are not intentionally like rational thinkers. And so it's important that when there's a solution, it really should be able to, to use the messaging and the language. And again, going back to that design aspect, as we said, whereby it's almost like a no brainer solution that people don't have to actually stop and think about it. It just seems like, of course it makes sense. Yeah, I, I love
1: the way you've put that. I'd like to keep pulling on this thread for a little bit longer. Jaden, you've said in an interview that the water bottle is the ultimate billboard. And personally, I just, I love this notion. How do you approach the educational cycle here? So someone buys one of the water bottles, they use it, and then they dispose of it. How are you going about educating them
0: during that pivotal moment? So we have people called returns officers who go around places that our bottles are sold and Continually let the staff know because we don't have that direct touch point all the time um, the staff know to let people know because it is different normally you just buy a bottle and you throw it away whereas have a have a system to go with it so that that piece where they're actually receiving the bottle over the counter is really crucial um, knowing they can reuse it knowing that they can return it and that will compost it but then the label obviously saves all of that as well. So we've made, we've just simplified our label. I think we've done probably 40 different label runs because we come up with a way to make it easier and simpler every time. And then now we've got to the point we have a QR code. So if you scan the QR code on the label, a map of collection points pops up so you can find one near you to, to return that bottle back. But it's just, a, it's just re- repetition because it is new and it's just constantly repeating that it's new and why it's new and how to use it. Making it really easy and really accessible is an, is an ongoing journey. Um, or doing things like festivals are, are really great because we can set up a water bar where we can actually educate people on the day, tell them not to buy any more bottles of water. If they've got one, just hold on to that one. We do free refills, we collect it back, and then we get about 90% of the bottles back out of festivals um and then when they're dirty and got kind of tomato sauce and chips all over them we compost them and if they're clean we'll chip them up and turn them into reusable cups or something that can go back into into festival environments but it's just a a constant state of repetition but i I couldn't agree more with prisca it's just about taking the choice out of it um and i think one benefit we have with sustainability i guess now becoming trendy is people see what they're doing as an extension of themselves and To be seen with a a, a plastic bottle, for example, might not be the coolest thing anymore. Where if you can have a bottle that speaks to to more about your values and your alignment and shows people what you believe in, you feel a little bit better about carrying it around. And we hope that that encourages people to feel more comfortable about using something that's reusable, but then can also be returned. um, And just continually drilling that home and finding new ways to say the same thing um, as an art in itself.
3: I want to add something on that, Jaden. I remember um, one time... I I didn't have my water bottle because I left it somewhere or at home. And I was so thirsty and I'm like, I'm going to have to buy a plastic bottle. And I was, I, of course I had to, because I was thirsty and there was nothing else, but I felt so guilty. Like I didn't have a bag and I was like, where do I hide this? People are going to be judging me and looking at me like, who still buys plastic? I just felt so weird. (laughs)
0: exactly where it came from I found myself on a 7 hour drive and I left my bottle at home and I I pulled into a petrol station and this was about 5 or 6 years ago now and I walked up to the fridge and there was like 4 or 5 fridges all full of water but it was all oil based bottles and I was like well I can pull over every half an hour and put my head under a tap but that's unrealistic so I'm going to have to buy something and I didn't in the end but looking at it going, well, where's my choice? Like if I, I do need to drink water, but I don't want to buy something that's made from oil, it's going to outlive my grandkids, it's toxic, and all these flow-on effects that come from it. So there's just kind of times in need where you do need a choice. And why not make it reusable and something that someone can hold on to and use for 9, 12 months after that, and then beyond reuse, have a life for it. So. I'm glad that you've found yourself in that situation as well. Well, not glad, but you can understand where I came.
2: <laughs> I think that's such an incredible story. And we have a similar um, thing about coffee cups at our office. Like we've got to the point now where the local cafe, now that things are opening up, we just have a, a general agreement that across the whole team everyone is can take the just the cups from the from our um from our little kitchen over to the cafe to get the, if they don't have a keep cup, and so that's just become the norm. And we have a trade system as well with the cafe where if we're still, if someone's still short, um, the cafe will let us take one of their cups back to our office and send it back clean um, once it's all done. And I think um, it's very unusual and everyone makes a comment when we see a a takeaway coffee cup in the office. Um, So I think a very very similar things happening across the board. Um, and I think really does drive change because it is becoming more normalised to make that change. Um, but I also wanted to give a B two B perspective as well to um, Bronte's question. So for Body, we're very much a B two B company, and one of the things, like picking up on points that's already already been made, is uh, in terms of. Uh, securing food waste supply, um, that really comes around reducing behavioral change in our, in our way. So, our facility is located pretty much precisely midpoint between um, the CBD and a cluster of landfills. Now, we now make it very easy, extremely accessible to tip food waste tips at our site instead of taking them to landfill. So there's there's no behavioral change other than the tipping location. And we also make a financial incentive as well. It's cheaper to tip food waste at body than to take it to landfill. And that's that's largely because of the government levies that are now in place as well, that make that possible. Um, and then and then so that's there's really limited behavioral change. And then the information piece is then going back to the original site and saying, hey, your food waste is being recycled with um, with Bardi, and that's the opportunity to start talk, talking about, um, hey, how could we reduce um, the contamination that's coming through these tips, working with the, um, the larger waste logistics companies um, on how they check the bins before they pick them up and some of the material they send to their customers as well. Um, so that's that's how we go with it on that front. And then, interestingly, for the I'll talk about the insect protein really quickly. The we sell to the pet food manufacturer, and it's one of the main ingredients that goes into the pet food. And we work with companies that are like 150 years old. Um, so these these quite old traditional companies in like B two B manufacturing with with big plants and um and so that it becomes interesting because the the messaging that they're sending to their customer is about the sustainability of the product um, and the way they're managing their supply chain really effectively. But that's not the only value prop that we're giving to that B2B customer. It's also about um, consistency of supply. Um, that we, we're producing this insect protein in a lab um, and it's consistent, that we have the kind of data systems that mean we can actually control the nutritional profile so they're not having to reformulate each, each time. So in both instances of the waste logistics company, so the truck's picking up the waste and then on the product side, there's actually an ops saving or an ops benefit to those B2B businesses to making the, making the switch And I think that that's not just coming to Bardi, but a lot of really great circular economy solutions, that it's not just the environmental value prop um, that creates the shift or converts even the most traditional 100-plus-year-old manufacturing company into using a really sustainable product, um, even diverting their waste into a more sustainable um, recycling system. It's also the the other, um, just like any other product, the other value propositions that go alongside that. And circular economy um, products don't have to only have a sustainability impact that can improve the user experience and, and so many other things as well.
3: And on that as well, I was just going to say, I think the common pun I am seeing, and I'm sure you guys are as well, is this is actually these sort of technologies that we are talking about, are going to be the norm like 20, 30, 50 years from now. And for example, many years from now, if you work in someone's house and they have a waterless based solution as a personal care or home cleaning product, you are gonna be like, what? Does that even, like, is that even a thing? Like, and it's gonna be almost the same as the single plastic sort of bottle thing I talked about. It's it's going to be like, no one does that anymore. Like what's wrong with you right so (laughs) but i think many many years from now like 50 years or i don't know even um how many years but i really do see a waterless solution as the future especially as water becomes a very expensive commodity we are running out of it and that's really gonna have a play into yeah into the future i think
1: Yeah, that's actually a perfect segue into my final question which is what's on the horizon? What's weird that's got you excited? What's wacky that's got you confused? And, you know, what does the future hold?
2: I think Jaden's description of um, PHA was the best one I've heard um, yet about how, how that's produced. I think there's going to be so much innovation in the packaging space
0: that's getting super exciting. You threw me off with weird, Bronte. I tried to think of something really wacky, but I couldn't. Sorry. But I think, I think the, the aspect of, of, of PHA is, is really exciting. I think looking at it from a systems point of view, if you think of you know the, the dairy industry, so New Zealand produced 20.8 billion litres of milk in 2018, and generally the waste is about three times that. So that's a lot of waste that's generally just getting injected back into pastures and causing ongoing harm, where... If you can take that and get the carbon out of it and make PHA and then suddenly milk bottles are made out of PHA and then when that milk bottle is done, it's getting made into PHA infinitely or getting composted and that compost is going back to the farm. Like You can start to come up with some really unreal solutions that aren't just a simple circle, but they've got all these little circles along the way. And I think that's what natural materials and working with nature um, allows because nature's worked out how to deal with its waste for billions of years. And suddenly we've kind of just tried to push against it for a while. But once we kind of get in, inside that and understand it, then there's really infinite potential. And I think regenerative farming as well, I know, I know it's not kind of really tech, not tech as such, but it's a natural technology. Or I like to view it as a natural technology. And looking at just the a range of benefits that fall out of doing something differently, um, is, it always, I guess, dumbfounds me a little bit. And it's, it's quite exciting.
3: No, but I also do feel like maybe um, but this concept is the same, the same thing. Like, you know, as I understood more about that, I'm like, this is mind blowing and the future of, you know, farming and food waste, it's, it's, it's a huge, huge space. That's going to have a
2: huge play in the future. I've got a couple of others as well that I absolutely love that are in the sort of food space um, and ag space that we're in. So one of them is um, an absolutely incredible company called Future Feed, and they work with the Sparagopsis. So um, it's this particular kind of seaweed, and they can include it in like cattle diets at less than 1% inclusion and reduce the methane production from those cattle uh, by 99%. So that's just so exciting and phenomenal. Just a really wacky kind of cool technology. And then another one is an, another incredible company that's in the food space called Fable. And I'm not sure if anyone who's listening has tried out the Fable offerings at Grilled. And I think there's a few other places that you can get it as well as in supermarkets. But I believe that that's actually taking... Some of the like stems from mushrooms or like the the waste from mushroom production and transforming it into a food that like tastes like real meat which is just kind of phenomenal i think i haven't heard of any other alternative meat companies like playing in the human food space where the origin source is actually a waste product so i think that's incredibly exciting
1: i mean that's where you're heading right phoebe feeding us all with insect
2: protein too? Yeah, we eat insects all the time as a team. We've got like one of those snack bars where you like the turn and like the nuts normally fall out in the office, but we have like all different flavoured insects in that. And that's yeah, super fun. So our, the insect we work with isn't officially up for human consumption just yet. Um, there's still a regulatory approval process for us to go through. Unofficially though, what does it taste like? Uh, unofficially, um, it tastes like, I think we get lots of different responses. I think it tastes like eating like a dried mushroom, like a dried porcini mushroom. Some people think it tastes a lot like, like a dried kind of prawn taste. It sounds very gourmet to me right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it has, um, it's super high in glutamic acid. So that umami savory taste basically, um, that we all like. Yeah. One day soon we hope it can be, um, a food for people, which is the most sustainable circular solution. Incredible.
1: Well, thank you so much to the three of you for for coming today for this live podcast recording. You have made me feel incredibly hopeful about the future of humanity.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Priska, Jaden. See you, to so
0: Thank you.
1: is to explore up and coming technologies and trends but this exploration doesn't cease when an episode comes to an end sm underground is not just a podcast it's a discord community too the sm underground discord is a space for you our listeners to listen share and meet fellow curious minds join at startmate.com forward slash join sm underground